Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. There are different types of dementia. It really is a cruel decline, having seen what it did to my mother. It robbed her family of so much. My mother should have been able to enjoy her retirement. Instead, her brain betrayed her, making easy tasks difficult, causing confusion and paranoia, and she never got to enjoy her two grandchildren. To be honest, our grieving began right after she was diagnosed and continued for many years until she passed away in 2019. Now, for families with loved ones that have Alzheimer's, there's a new drug, aducanumab, that manufacturer Biogen says can reduce plaque in the brain. There are still questions whether it could slow down the progression of this disease. It's the first new Alzheimer's drug in almost two decades, but it's a complicated treatment when you drill down and learn about the drug's efficacy, its known side effects, and its exorbitant cost. Today, where we live, we talk about this new drug. Alzheimer's disease is the sixth leading cause of death for Americans and residents in our state. Does this disease affect your family? We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. As always, you can share a comment on our Facebook page, and you can find us on Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome our first guest to the show on Zoom, Nicole Leonard. She's health reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Nicole, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. I know in your reporting, you spoke to a family, a local family that's been affected by Alzheimer's. Can you tell us about uh, the, the McElhaney's? Yeah, uh, Deborah and Paul McElhenney, um, they've been married for coming up on 43 years now, and they're both actually longtime residents of Connecticut. They grew up in West Hartford and Simsbury, um, where they now live together uh, with their two adult children down the road and their grandchildren. Um, and these last couple of years have been hard from them. It was actually about seven years ago that Deborah had noticed some changes uh, in Paul. Um, her husband, that she thought maybe, um, you know, they, they better seek some medical help. And this is what Deborah told you about her husband. It really was after Paul retired and was home more that I started noticing things that made me think something's going on here. And then Paul was an attorney for 40 years and started out as a tax attorney. So he always did our income taxes because he was really good at that. And then that year, it was harder for him. I call some people say that retirement should be the best years of your life. And so how long has Paul lived with this diagnosis? You're right. I mean, they were really looking forward to retirement. Um, they had a trip planned right after um, and uh, shortly after his re his official retirement, um, they saw um, a medical diagnosis and they were informed that Paul had Alzheimer's disease at 72 years old and he's now almost 80. So he's been living with this disease for um, for several years now. Um, and that was pretty uh, devastating to the family. 
With us as well on Zoom is Dr. Yazid Magaida. He's co-director of the Memory Assessment Program at the Yukon Center on Aging and assistant professor of medicine at Yukon Health. Dr. Magaida, so many of us have heard of Alzheimer's or have seen it in our families, but can you tell us just the basics when we talk about this particular type of dementia, what it does to people? Good morning, Lucy. Yeah, sure. Um, as you mentioned earlier, um, there are different kinds of dementia. And dementia, if you think about it, is like the umbrella diagnosis or in geriatrics, we say medical syndrome. It's multifactorial in causes and down the road require multidisciplinary team and treatment. So Alzheimer's disease um, is the most common cause of dementia and it's characterized by um, biological pathology. So our current understanding, the processes start in a preclinical stage before the patient start to have symptoms. Um, and that's where uh, I think this will be important to clarify with the current discussion about the new medicine. Our current understanding is uh, two proteins. The first one is amyloid beta starts building up and cause the plaques. Eventually another protein, the tau protein will cause the neurofibrillary tangles. And that down the road, this leads to the um, further damage to the to the brain tissue, the nerve cells, and the connections there. Um, I think it's important as we talk about the treatment to recognize that there are different stages of the disease. Preclinical, the one I just described. Then after that comes the mild changes. Family and the patient may and may not pick on that. We call it mild cognitive impairment. MCI is a clinical diagnosis. And then down the road, there'll be mild, moderate, and severe. But I want to say um, uh, the disease is characterized by cognitive changes, though memory is the dominant one, but it involves other, other cognitive skills that usually our brain in charge in coordinating, like executive function, managing finances, paying the bills, visual spatial skills, orientation, and others usually um, help us go day by day. Um, as the disease progressed, as the, the, the pathology caused more damage, this leads to more disability and difficulty in day-to-day um, in, in -day, uh, function. And that will cause the, the patient become more dependent. Um, there are things we call activities of daily livings and instrumental activities of daily living. Things you and I will do in the morning, we don't think about it, take a shower, pick your attire for the day, getting a dress, drive your car, um, you know, manage your finances, do your shopping, prepare your meals. All these things do meaningful conversation and interaction with family members. Unfortunately, the disease will cause um, uh, enough changes in the person, cognitive skills and behavioral function that interfere and cause impairment in all these day-to-day um, -day activities. Mm. Um, so you've done a great, Dr. Magaida, you've done a great job laying out the, the different stages of this disease, the slow progression. Uh, Nicole, when you spoke with Paul and Deborah, because of the progression of this disease, of course, so many families want to find a way to slow the progression because there is no cure. And so tell us about how they heard about this trial for this drug and why they decided to participate. 
Well, they were actually uh, looking into some uh, management programs to help Paul deal with um, uh, nutrition and other things that they could um, implement into their lives to make living with his disease easier. And then through that, they had heard from a doctor that trials were happening around the country for a new drug called aducanumab. And uh, this drug... Uh, was being tested to see if it would slow the progression of Alzheimer's symptoms. So slow the progression of memory loss, of um, impaired thinking, and to try and, and, you know, hold off the disease for as long as it could. And so they had heard that a trial site was happening at Yale University and um, they decided to, he was a good candidate because he did have mild cognitive impairment, um, which means he was in the earlier stages of his diagnosis. Um, and they decided ultimately he, uh, he officially enrolled in that uh, clinical trial. And this is what Paul shared with you about the time that he was in this trial. I always felt that, you know, whenever something was put in front of us, that there was just no question what you do. And uh, I think my wife has been fantastic. And, uh, she's a great driver to drive us both down to New Haven and back. Um, and, you know, the infusion and everything is, it's a takes about an hour for it to drip in and you get back in the car and come back home. So Nicole, explain how uh, this this drug is taken. It's a monthly infusion. So you do have to go in an, in an inpatient setting. It's not really an outpatient procedure that can be done. You have to go into the hospital or, or a medical setting. You have to sit down in a chair An IV is hooked up um, and you have to wait. Like Paul had mentioned, you wait about an hour for the medicine to drip in and then you go home. And for the Macalinis, they live in Simsbury. So New Haven is, is a is a good ride down. Um, so they were doing not only that for the infusions, but they also had to regularly, Paul had to regularly get brain scans because they had to see one, if the drug was uh, doing what it was supposed to do and that it was removing some of that amyloid plaque um, in his brain. And two, they also had to monitor whether if he was developing any side effects. And the doctors on, on this show will be much more equipped to explain, go into detail about that. But they did have to make sure um, that he wasn't developing any serious um, health issues related to this clinical trial. And I should mention, Lucy, that when they were doing the, the trial stages, um, this particular one, it was double blind, which which means Deborah and Paul enrolled in this trial and they had no idea if Paul was going to get some level of this drug or if he was going to get the placebo, which is not the drug at all. Um, and they only wound up, they wound up finding out much later that he was in fact enrolled. He was getting the highest dose of uh, this clinical, this drug in the clinical trials. And this is what Deborah McElhenney shared with you about what she observed when her husband was in the trial. For the majority of the time, things were going pretty well, except when they decided to end the study for a while, that was devastating. And, and I think during that time, Paul did decline a bit, which also to me showed that when he was on aducanumab, it was helping. So we were thrilled when they brought it back. 
And we'll be talking more about why that drug trial was halted uh, coming up on the show. But I wanted to go back to Dr. Magaida um, as we are learning more about this new treatment. Uh, can you talk about what the clin- clinical trials have shown related to this plaque? Um, so the plaque is the, the biological pathology behind the scene. I think as we talk about the plaque, it's important to understand that to make the diagnosis, um, it will be critical for patients with symptoms to be evaluated by Alzheimer's disease specialist or memory clinic, because that will involve as well um, careful clinical examination, cognitive testing, blood tests to rule out other possible contributor to cognitive impairment and the brain imaging. Having said that, everything I mentioned is what we use in day-to-day clinical practice. And um, this what we based on it, our diagnosis. To go a step farther, which is extremely important before we offer such a specific medicine, we have to do advanced imaging or more, more specific biomarkers, we call them. With that, I mean, we want to see evidence of the amyloid beta plaques building up around the brain tissue. And the way this has been um, diagnosed by doing a special brain scan called amyloid PET scan, PET, that's positron emission tomography. And the second way is to do a spinal tab or lumbar puncture where we can take a sample from the CSF fluid, the cerebrospinal fluid circulates around the brain tissue and carries the proteins um, that we just described. And by specific testing, you can confirm that the patient has the pathology involving um, or started with the amyloid plaques. Mm -hmm. Only at that point, that kind of patient can be offered the treatment. Um, As we will continue to... Yeah, go ahead. Are you hearing from patients who've heard about aducanumab and, and and want to start this treatment? Of course, I mean, since since the FDA approval, there have been multiple uh, phone calls and emails. Um, as it's mentioned earlier, this is a very common disease and unfortunately cause a lot of stress and um, to the patients and the caregivers. Um, it's a true at the beginning families and patients um, are, are focused on understanding what's, what is happening, what, what is causing this change. But as the disease progressed um, or progresses, it, they, they shift in focus to the needed care. And that we see more in the moderate and advanced stage. So some families and patients already got busy with the second or third phase of the disease. With that, as, as we will cover today, this kind of a treatment may not be an option, or at least we don't have yet the evidence to say it will make any difference mm-hmm. there. But yes, there have been uh, some excitement in, in, in the medical community to have a new medicine, but um, I think more details we should cover about why there was controversy about the medicine. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, and we'll be getting to that. Dr. Yazid <laughs> Magaida, he's with us here on Zoom, co-director of the Memory Assessment Program at the Yukon Center on Aging. Also with us, Nicole Leonard, health reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. As we talk about this new Alzheimer's drug approved by the FDA earlier this month, aducanumab, the brand name Adjahelm. If you have questions, you can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter at where we live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about a new FDA-approved drug to treat Alzheimer's disease. Aducanumab is not a cure, but manufacturer Biogen says it can reduce amyloid plaque in the brain. It's unclear whether this drug slows down progression of the disease and memory loss. And not everyone agrees with the FDA's decision to approve this drug. Joining us now on Zoom, Dr. Joseph Ross. He's professor of medicine and public health at the Yale School of Medicine. He also leads a federally funded center on regulatory science research. Uh, Joe, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Lucy. Sorry, I had trouble coming off mute. <laughs> no problem. So when we think about all of the, the research and uh, the drug manufacturers that have tried many years prior to aducanumab uh, to develop something to treat Alzheimer's, uh, tell us about some of these uh, attempts and you know why the FDA approved this particular drug now. Well, as we heard from Dr. Magaida and others before, I mean, Alzheimer's disease is a common disease with significant morbidity you know, and mortality. It's very difficult for patients and very difficult for their families. So this is obviously a priority area for drug manufacturers to try to identify any therapy that makes living with Alzheimer's disease easier or reduces the burden of the disease. So many companies have attempted to develop drugs over the years <clears throat> to treat this disease through various mechanisms, including by removing amyloid plaque from the brain. Unfortunately, none of them have been successful. And what is it about this particular drug in the clinical trials that convinced the FDA that now is the time to approve aducanumab? Because I understand a, a committee of scientists and researchers did not think this was the right time to do so. 
Yeah, this was a very controversial approval uh, in which the FDA uh, really made decisions that were uh, at least discordant or out of line with what a lot of members of the clinical and scientific community believe around uh, how this drug might work and use which outcomes to use to support the clinical trial. So the company did two large clinical trials uh, administering the drug, you know, as Nicole described, you know, with these month monthly infusions and monitoring and scans uh, afterwards. And they were, patients were given cognitive tests to try to better understand uh, whether the drug was indeed slowing the disease. And they were looking to see if amyloid reduction was happening in the brain. When the trials were originally designed, though, they weren't designed to see if it was effective at reducing the plaque. The trials were designed to see if they would improve cognitive function or slow the progression of the disease on the basis of these cognitive scales. And both trials, both major trials, when they were looked at at about halfway through, which is common in clinical trial conduct, were found to not be effective. Essentially, the, the data monitoring board said it would be futile to continue providing this drug to patients because it was unlikely to be infective and it was just exposing patients to risk. After the, after the trials were stopped, the company and the FDA looked at the data in different ways. It's something that's called a post hoc analysis. And looking at data after a trial has been finished and trying to generate new hypotheses using those data is common. But basing a decision on the basis of a post hoc analysis is very uncommon and comes with a lot of uncertainty. But essentially, the, the FDA and the company thought that there was suggestion of benefit among patients who got a very high dose of the drug in one of the two trials. The other trial was very clearly negative, negative in both the low dose and high dose recipients. Uh, and so they made this decision, uh, you know, essentially on the hope that maybe the benefits would pan out. But even when you look very closely at the data and look at the difference between uh, the patients who got placebo versus the patients who got the high dose medication, even on the, the endpoint that the FDA said worked, this clinical scale endpoint, um, it was a very marginally beneficial uh, uh, difference. So marginal that most clinical neurologists would tell you that it was not clinically significant. It wasn't a difference that you would notice in clinical practice. So for all of the reasons you laid out, this, uh, the clinical trials and the data that was pulled to, to lead to the approval by the FDA, not following best practice uh, for clinical trials and showing that this drug is both safe and effective, Joe? Well, I, I, the, the, the clinical trial that was done well and followed all the rules. It was the sort of interpretation of the trial after that was irregular. And, you know, when, when this types of th things happens, usually or often the FDA will convene a, a body of experts, independent experts to review the information and help them make a decision. And the FDA did that. They brought in uh, 11 or so experts in statistics and Alzheimer's disease and clinical trial design and so on. And when they were presented with all the information by the company, by the FDA, by other independent experts, they voted near unanimously that the data did not support the approval. Ten members of the advisory committee panel said, do not approve the drug. No one voted to approve it. And one individual said that they were uncertain about whether the drug might provide benefit. So in this case, we have not only all these irregularities happening 
after the trials were stopped because of futility, looking at these post hoc analyses. But you have an independent group clearly voicing their opinion that it was not sufficiently effective. And there are concerns about safety. The reason that patients were getting these scans every month is because the drug causes these types of uh, like swelling in the brain, micro bleeds in the brain, not all of which cause symptoms, but some of which do. Uh, and necessitates changing of the dosage, and if it's not observed quickly, could uh, lead to more serious problems. So this is a drug that is, you know, marginally effective at best and potentially unsafe. So there's a lot of reasons to be worried about uh, providing this drug to patients. Nicole, when you laid out uh, the McElhenney's and Simsbury, their decision to participate in the trial, that was part of the whole process, not only getting uh, traveling to get the drug, uh, but also um, checking to see if there were any anything wrong with Paul's brain because he was getting this medicine? Yes, they had to um, perform several brain scans to make sure that he wasn't there. Are, there are potential side effects. And um, like Joe had mentioned and Dr. Magaida, it's there are some risks that come with taking this medication. And um, really the best way to figure out if somebody is suffering from that is one, if they start to develop symptoms. Um, or two, they do brain scans and they find that they have um, what are called edemas in their brain. And I will leave it up to one of the doctors on this call to explain a little bit more about that. But um, there was a significant uh, percentage of people they found in the clinical trials that did develop these edemas um, and, and to varying degrees, right? There are some people who developed um, what they call mild complications of this. And then there was a smaller percent who uh, developed severe, but the McElhenney's had to determine um, by Paul participating in this clinical trial, if it was worth it, uh, if it was worth it and, and to weigh the risks of taking the actual drug. And they believed it was worth it. They do. They um, like Deborah. You had heard from Deborah that um, she, on an uh, really on an observational level, um, had said that she believed while Paul was on the drug that he did decline less, and that when these trials stopped, um, because as uh, Joe was referring to, um, they really weren't you know coming up with data that showed that this was benefiting patients. The trial stopped, and she did say that she thought um, Paul had started to decline again, even further, progress further into his disease. Um, but again, a lot of these are are, are observational. There's really um, sort of a lack of hard um, data that, that um, proves some of the things that people are noticing in their loved ones. Again, you're hearing Nicole Leonard, health reporter for Connecticut Public Radio, as we talk about this new Alzheimer's drug approved by the FDA earlier this month, aducanumab. If you have a question, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You also just heard from Dr. Joseph Ross, professor of medicine and public health at Yale School of Medicine. And also with us is Dr. Yazid Magaida, co-director of the Memory Assessment Program at the Yukon Center on Aging. So Dr. Magaida, I will ask you again, as, as a physician working in a center that sees many patients who may be eligible for this drug, what are your concerns about it and would you prescribe it? Sure, yeah. I think as a clinician and and um, m most uh, physician involved in uh, dementia and Alzheimer's diagnosis and treatment, 
Um, couple of the issues we're we're facing are the lack of strong clinical evidence. So as Joe covered that clearly, um, there were two major studies, but they, they did not approve the the goal I would like um, to see before I prescribe that that um, the aducumab to my patients. The FDA approval process, which I think that was as well covered clearly here. I want to talk about the cost. Um, for me, somebody who served in an underserved area in the state, you know, the patient's ability to afford the medicine and the investigation is extremely important. Um, I found myself sometimes, you know, with chained hands and unable to proceed with the treatment plan. With that, with the cost, in this case, I mean um, uh, two things. The cost of the medicine itself and the cost of testing. And the reason now we're gonna face the testing because future um, studies will be done as what we called phase four. That's mean post-marketing, the medicine already approved by FDA and any testing that will, need, will be needed to confirm that the patient has Alzheimer's disease and has the amyloid beta plaques will be done based on the insurance. And the fact is the PET scan is not covered by most insurances and including the Medicare. Um, number puncture depends on the insurance. Um, the second part for me as a clinician, who should take the medicine? So far, the group that was tested in the large studies by the maker, Biogen, were either patients with mild stage of Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment, the other, you know, pre-dementia clinical stage. It was not tested yet on patients with moderate or advanced, even though the FDA approval say this is a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. Um, uh, it's the medicine, the way it works, obviously it clears the plaques, but the clinical uh, impact of clearing the, the, the plaques is what, what we like to see. Um, let's talk more about let's talk more about the cost. Side uh, yeah, the cost. And, yeah, <laughs> and you you bring up some great point, points. Uh, Joe Ross, I mean, the list price for this drug, fifty six thousand dollars a year. Yeah, the company has put a price on the drug that is exceptionally high, particularly for a drug that is going to be started at a point in a person's life without any expectation that it'll stop because. Once you make the decision to start treatment and you, you know, you're giving it in the hopes that it's going to slow the progression of the disease, how would you then ever make the decision to stop treatment? Because you would never know the counterfactual of what would have happened if you weren't taking it. So many people, and Dr. McGuire can speak to this, many people will be on this medication for years upon years. And, you know, people have insurance, of course, and some many of the people will be covered by Medicare, but this is a drug that's covered through the physician benefit or Part B. Not everybody has that. You have to pay extra for it, or you can have a Medigap plan, or our state Medicaid program is going to pay for it. It's going to be exceptionally expensive, not only to patients and their families who are going to be responsible for the 20% insurance that's associated with any drug administered through the Part B program, but it's going to be exceptionally expensive for all of us who live in the state or all of us who have health insurance and pay taxes. Because at the end of the day, um, 
health insurance companies will raise premiums if they continue to provide this drug in large numbers to patients because their costs will go up. And that's just what happens in our U.S. healthcare system. And it's a lot of money. And it's money that could very well be better spent, better spent on providing caregivers and support to patients with long-term med- med- memory problems who, who need need assistance, you know, providing, you know, physical activity and other exercise-based interventions that have been proven to be marginally effective, not super effective, but they, they work probably better than this drug. And so there's lots of ways that we could be better using uh, this substantial amount of resources that will be uh, required to pay the cost of this drug. Mm. Uh, Joe, you wrote an op-ed along with some of your colleagues uh, that U.S. healthcare spending could swell by $112 billion annually just from this one drug, aducanumab. The FDA and Medicare, their hands are tied when it comes to the price of this particular drug? Well, it's very interesting. Uh, the FDA has no responsibility when it comes to drug costs. They have It's not within their oversight or jurisdiction. Um, and currently in our you know, current political system, uh, Medicare is not al- allowed to negotiate prices for drugs or any other services, really. They, they provide reimbursement based on you know, diagnostic-related groups or essentially the cost that care to take care of a person on average. So for an ex- expensive new drug like this, it can, it can blow the barn doors off, so to speak. And the estimates about how much it would cost have been widely varying, in part because we have no idea how many people will you know, solicit treatment. And as Dr. McGuidick explained, only patients with early stage Alzheimer's disease and evidence of amyloid plaque were recruited into the trials. Yet the FDA label suggests that anyone with Alzheimer's disease would be indicated for treatment. So, so nobody quite knows yet how much it will end up costing. But Medicare... Uh, it's going to have a difficult decision to make about whether to reimburse the costs of this drug, you know, at the price that the company is 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 uh, has set it. My great hope is that they won't provide reimbursement outside of the uh, settings of a clinical trial, because we know so little and if there's so much uncertainty about the drug's effectiveness. I'm hoping that payers, particularly Medicare, can step up and say, you know, we understand the need for more evidence. And so if we are going to provide reimbursement, the patient has to be enrolled in a clinical trial so that we're learning from the treatment they're receiving. I want to take a, a quick call as, again, we talk about this new Alzheimer's treatment, aducanumab. Uh, Sandy's calling in from Massachusetts. Sandy, what did you want to share? Well, I'm a musician who plays in a lot of memory care units. And um, and my father actually declined into dementia and whether it was Alzheimer's a few years ago. But it seems to me, it gets down to this thing of let's, let's find a cure for old age. Honestly, uh, and a lot of these guys seem to be referring to that, uh, it's the caregiving that's important. Um, and the drug companies want to make money, and it's like, I, I was a caregiver for a friend with MS for years, and uh, the aggressive kind, and he's still going along, and he says they just want to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. So... Um, a bit of a cynical look at things, but the, care, the, the caregiving is the main thing. And the fear that families show about something happening to them is so understandable. And people are desperate to, have, to have, you know, there must be something we can do. But mm-hmm. honestly, 
the smiles, the friendliness, the, the reassurance, that's what does it. So uh, anyway, I, I think it, it can be so, I don't know, the drug company thing, uh, if there's real evidence that something can be done, then go for it. But uh, there's a lot of money involved and there's a lot of fear involved. The main thing is just for us to be taking care of each other. So mm. thanks for listening. Thank you, Sandy, for calling in. Uh, Dr. Magaida, before we head to break, I did want to just circle back with you yeah. and to talk with you as a physician about the side effects uh, of this particular uh, medicine. Sure. Uh, I think the caller made a very, very important point, and that definitely, as a clinician, seeing these patients fit more with, with the more advanced and moderate stage. It's worth to say that the, the medicine, the way it works as monoclonal antibody, is unique. And this is a field expanding in medicine and, and cancer treatment, connective tissue disease, rheumatology offers really uh, breakthrough treatment uh, for difficult conditions. And why not for Alzheimer, but except for the, the challenges we, we highlighted earlier. And one of them with this medicine will be beside the cost and, and uh, evidence is, is the side effects. Um, um, it's uh, the, the, the way the medicine works, it triggers the, the immune system in the body to clear the plaques. With that, some, some swelling like uh, edema in medicine, we call it, will build up around the brain tissue. And the only way you will know if this is happening or not, if you do MRI uh, for the brain. Here you go, you add more cost. And the changes were described in the study were uh, defined as amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, ARIA. So that happens up to 35% of patients who took the treatment. Um, and um, this could be two kinds. It could be just this, the edema or, or fluid uh, buildup around the brain tissue. Most of the time it's asymptomatic and it could be micro hemorrhage or bleeding around or inside the brain tissue. Uh, fortunately, only 30% of patients who develop that changes will have symptoms. But there are other side effects and reported to be more than 10% or even higher comparing to patients who were taking the placebo, um, like severe headache or um, um, some confusion and delirium, even though this medicine is given to treat the, 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 the Alzheimer's dementia, this could happen as well. Mm. Well, I want to thank Dr. Yazid more, Magada. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. I have to head to break, but I just wanted to thank you for your time as co-director of the Memory Assessment Program at the Yukon Center on Aging. And Nicole Leonard was also here, health reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, staying with us is Dr. Joseph Ross, professor of medicine and public health at Yale School of Medicine. And coming up, we're going to hear from one of the lead advocates, uh, the advocate organization for families and people with Alzheimer's. That's the Alzheimer's Association. We'll hear from the Connecticut chapter after the break about this new drug. You can join us too. Kendra tweets, I feel for the profiled family. My mom has early onset dementia, not Alzheimer's, so I understand the desire to believe something. Anything will help. But the FDA approving this drug is essentially medical malpractice. Kendra says it doesn't work well, it causes serious side effects, as we've heard, and is caught too costly. We'll keep talking about it after the break.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont joins us for the hour to take your questions. We hope you join us. Now, today we've heard from guests who've expressed serious concerns about the approval process for a new Alzheimer's drug. But there's an advocacy group, one of the lead ones in our country, that supports this choice for families. Joining us now to tell us more on Zoom, Christy Koval. She's Director of Public Policy for the Alzheimer's Association, the Connecticut chapter. Christy, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. So tell us why the Alzheimer's Association welcomes the FDA's approval of aducanumab. Um, Well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I think recognizing the controversy, um, there is a dire and drastic need to offer relief and support to the millions of Americans impacted each day, you know, by the crushing realities of Alzheimer's disease. And we recognize this is the first, uh, you know, in many, many years of, of a drug of showing some hope, but we know that this will, um, you know, open up and invigorate the field of research, um, you know, increase investments in new treatments and generate greater innovation. How do you respond to the concerns, though, where doctors and others say, look, the science is just not there to show that this medicine is effective and actually modifies the course of the disease? The Alzheimer's Association works with many scientists uh, who are leaders in the field, and we respect, welcome, and encourage uh, different perspectives. Um, differences of opinion and interpretation among scientists are normal and important. Um, you know, with varying perspectives, uh, you know, they're essential to drive the field forward. And what about the cost? How has the Alzheimer's Association? advocating for if this is the drug that's out there and it's been approved, how will people afford and what this means for our whole country's healthcare system? We absolutely recognize that there are barriers um, and we are advocating for access. Uh, We have called uh, to lower the price of this and we're working with CMS and uh, private payers uh, for coverage. Um, But as it was mentioned earlier in the show, um, you know, there's been coverage issues for years on things like PET scans. And I want to talk about that whole process of early detection and diagnosis. You know, that remains the key element of of Alzheimer's disease and being able to be diagnosed so you can plan uh, for quality of life and put those interventions into place to really um, make a plan of care. So it's it's one of those things If people want to go on our website alz.org or call our 24-hour helpline at 800-272-3900. We have a number of resources, not only on this drug, but on care and support uh, for families, because we are continuing to advocate not only for federal research funding uh, at the National Institutes of Health, but we are also continuing just to advocate for families and provide uh, programs and services and supports. Uh, Christine tweeted, my family lost my dad to Alzheimer's after more than a decade of suffering. And like others, we're desperate for a treatment or cure, but she can't help thinking big pharma is taking advantage and are too close to this drug approval process. And there's money to be made on people's desperation. How do you respond to that, Christy? So this is the first drug, you know, in many, many years uh, for Alzheimer's disease. And I think what it's important to remember is that this is elevating the conversation. 
Um, this is not a cure. This is just a pivotal moment in, in the disease process. There is still a lot of research going on in the field. Um, we are funding and leading a research trial uh, looking at lifestyle interventions. There are a number of drugs in the pipeline. So I think what's important for people to remember is that this particular drug is not a cure. It is the first uh, potential treatment, looking at the underlying biology of the disease, but that more research needs to be done, and we're continuing to advocate for more research. You're hearing Christy Koval, Director of Public Policy for the Alzheimer's Association here in Connecticut. Dr. Joseph Ross is still with us, Professor of Medicine and Public Health at Yale School of Medicine. Joe, how do you respond to Christy's points? Again, uh, coming from the family perspective, you know, so many families want to try something to keep their loved one uh, with them, to keep their loved one, the person that they know. Uh, we know this uh, disease is so cruel, but in the sense of what this means for future drug development, the way that the FDA handled this process? Well, as Christy noted, it is such a difficult and terrible disease. No one, no one is disagreeing with that. And everybody wants to be able to provide, you know, treatment that's effective to slow the progression of this disease and support the families and the caregivers who are managing these patients. But the FDA's role is to require a certain evidentiary standard, a certain standard of evidence that provides convincing proof that the drug is effective and safe prior to its approval, regardless of the burden of the disease. We don't approve products because the disease is terrible. We approve products because the product is effective at preventing or treating the disease. And I think one of the challenges here is what's gonna happen next, given this approval that was based on a proxy benefit, this, this change in amyloid, which has proven over many, many years and many, many trials to not be a reliable marker of clinical benefit. What will happen now in terms of the pipeline for new drugs and what's going to happen now in terms of the, this product itself and, and the next round of study? If the FDA had said, we're not going to approve the product now, this evidence is thought-provoking but not convincing, do another study. And if that study was beneficial, I think every physician like me or health policy expert or, you know, people would be, you know, clapping and, and so excited that there was an effective treatment for Alzheimer's. The big concern here is that scientists, clinicians are looking at this evidence and they do not see evidence of benefit. They don't see evidence that it's going to improve the lives of their patients, but they do see the burden it's going to place on them, both in terms of the requirements to get treatment and the requirements uh, in the, the potential safety costs in the, and, and just the actual costs of the treatment. So, you know, if the FDA had required study now, we would all be in a better place because in three to four years, we would get our answer. And I know it's hard when there's a significant burden of disease and people are desperate for treatment. But it's worse to provide a treatment to patients that's burdensome and costly when it's not effective. I should note before we run out of time, uh, the FDA has told the company Biogen that they will need to continue to conduct clinical trials on aducanumab for the next nine years uh, to gather more data. But Joe, you see a problem with this setup as well. Yeah, that is an ex exceptionally long time frame that belies the urgency with which we need data to support any decision about whether to use treatment, which is why I had made the point earlier that if payers, health insurance companies or Medicare or whomever 
is going to provide reimbursement for this drug, it should only be in the context of a clinical trial from which we can learn to understand whether there is any clinical benefit associated with its use. Does it actually slow the progression of the disease in a way that's clinically significant? Christy, just a couple minutes left. How soon could this drug be available to Connecticut families? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I do know that uh, the first treatment was administered uh, in Rhode Island last week. Um, I think if people have questions about this drug, they should reach out to their healthcare provider, which I, I know we've heard on the show people are doing. They can go on our website, alz.org. Uh, we have some information on there as well, or they can call our 24-hour helpline, 800-272-3900. Again, the most important thing people need to remember is they need to reach out to their healthcare provider to talk to them about whether or not this is a possibility for them, um, You know, given all of the things that we've talked about today on the show. Well, I want to thank Christy Koval again for coming on with the Alzheimer's Association here in Connecticut. Christy, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Lucy. And I wanted to let listeners know that Congress is investigating not only the approval process, but this idea that this drug, the list price again for one year for one patient is $56,000. What this will mean again for health care costs, for the public program, Medicare, Kaiser Family Foundation analyzing this, saying that it will cost the federal government as much as the EPA or NASA. And Joe Ross, I want to thank you for your time. Again, Professor of Medicine and Public Health at Yale School of Medicine. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to our technical producer, Kat Pastor. Again, Governor Ned Lamont on tomorrow's Where We Live. We hope you join us with your questions. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. <laughs>